politics without the soap opera with unfiltered constitutional conservative truth. The Conservative Review with Daniel Horowitz. And welcome back, fellow American patriots and Minutemen standing at the ready to fight anew for everything that matters. Substance, substance, and substance. It just happens to be. It's our life, liberty, and property on the line here for a brand new week. It is Monday. And as always, we are at a crossroads. We could focus on substance or we could focus on the soap opera. We could clamor for leadership or we could clamor for entertainment. And, you know, it it just reminds me of how in the book of, of Samuel, when the Israelites were supposed to be led as a faith-based society, really each man under his great vineyard and his fig tree, doing what's right in the eyes of God with a spiritual leader. <clears throat> and that spiritual leader was Samuel. Get it done, bring them close to God, do what's right and done. But they wanted a king. They wanted all the tapestries and the trappings of a king. They wanted the glory. They wanted the persona. And ultimately, they turned away from God. And I think what it boils down to is do we want a king or do we want a leader? Because that's rooted in, in a question of do we want substance or do we want entertainment? I know entertainment doesn't necessarily translate over into a king, but If you want substance, that means you want leadership. And I don't just mean a chief executive, a president, a governor, or whatever. That'll be a good leader. That is true. But you yourself will be that leader. You yourself will lead on the issues. And like we talk about, there's many layers of government and culture and economy where we could lead on ourselves. But if you don't focus on substance, you just like entertainment So then you just want it done for you. Oh, Papa will take care of us. A king will take care of us. And then meantime, I'll focus on levity. And and you see this dichotomy really played out at the beginning of the weekend, juxtaposed to the end of the weekend, starting with today on Monday. So throughout the weekend, I see all the news among my colleagues on the right, on Twitter, is all about RFK taking his shirt off. And how at 69 years old, he's ripped and he's fit. And now, now now he's like feeding off of it. The more people commenting on it. So now he takes his shirt off even more and does push-ups. And I'm getting ready to debate Biden. And our side's like, yeah, yeah, who would you rather have? Uh, RFK was ripped or Biden who's half dead. And as I noted last week, RFK has become the comedic relief for conservative politics. The comedic relief to avoid dealing with the issue that you really need to deal with, which is in your own primary, do you want a king or a leader? Do you want to focus on substance or do you want to focus on entertainment? So instead, they they harness this entertainment on the other side so they don't have to deal with that uh, family divide. I don't want to tick off my listeners. I don't want to take sides. So I'm going to go over to the Democrat primary. But as I noted, it's it's meaningless because, you know, whatever you think of RFK, he's not going to win more than 15, 20 percent in the modern Democrat Party. So you're wasting your time. But now it's become this whole like, you know, oh, yeah, you know, this guy is going to really do stuff for us because he takes his shirt off. Now, I, I would venture to say if Ron DeSantis would take off his shirt, 
you know, he's pretty fit too. Maybe it's not as much of a novelty because he's much younger. Uh, but you'll never find him taking off his shirt. He just won't do that. <laughs> so we have to go buy substance. And you know what's interesting? And again, I, I want to spend more time focusing on DeSantis versus Trump, but it's just everyone's focusing on RFK. I have no problem with him. He's done great work on vaccines. Um, you know, Children's Health Defense Fund, they just did an article on on some of my content, um, and I look forward to working with them. But the bottom line is, you go through all the fanfare, the rhetoric, there is a part of RFK that's a little bit like Trump. That were he actually to get in a position of power and be confronted with the pressure of the name calling, the pressure of love, and I know he's called a lot of names on the outside as as kind of an anti-vaccine, you know, movement guy. But when you are actually charged with being chief executive of a state or the federal government, that's a different story. You know, I found it was interesting. Dave Weigel reported this, that's how you pronounce his name, um, a couple weeks ago, how Kennedy described in an interview meeting DeSantis, and he said, we talked about him possibly running for the presidency, and I said, how will you handle the NIH? And he said, I'll burn it to the ground. You know, I understand the impulse, but I think I could have a more surgical impact on these agencies. So, I found that kind of interesting, and it got me wondering, it's not just the concerns of other issues. We don't know where he stands. I mean, this guy has been kind of a womanizing drugs type of guy most of his life. I think he's probably matured and certainly woken up after COVID, not just to vaccines where he was always you know, very hardcore on, but other issues as well. But were he to actually get in there, do you think he would be as righteous as you think he is? I mean, it's kind of untested. And that's why I think this is just bull to focus on the entertainment. Oh, he takes his shirt off, so that means he'll be amazing. Results matter. You know, you might have seen this article. So everyone's talking about the shirt off. But then later in the weekend, Axios put out an article that Larry Fink, who's the CEO of BlackRock, one of the lead evil globalists around, he said he is no longer using the term ESG because it's been weaponized and now he's ashamed to use it. And he basically said DeSantis totally killed the labeling of it. Um, He said this at a conversation at Aspen, which is where they all gather, that DeSantis' decision to pull $2 billion in assets hurt his firm in 2022 I'm ashamed of being part of this conversation. When I write these investment letters, it was never meant to be a political statement. (laughs) You see, yes, it was. Except he never meant to draw fire from it. And that's why I said I'm not going to use the term anymore. But he blamed DeSantis for making it unusable. And I would point out, folks that there's an article in Bloomberg, April 17, 2020, during the height of Trump's lockdown, Chief Executive BlackRock provided insight to Trump on coping with the fallout from the pandemic. That basically he had a connection to Trump, 
and he invited him to talk about the fallout, what to do with the economy. And again, you know, they will tell you who they're scared of. So we could talk about the taking the shirt off. And when I see the taking the shirt off, it reminds me a lot of Trump in 2016. Now, again, I, I don't I don't want to make this as a riff on RFK because my whole point is he's irrelevant. Now, were he to run in a general election as an independent, you know, especially if DeSantis doesn't get the nomination, I definitely consider him. I'd have to see who does win. You know, Trump, presumably that means Trump would win. And I'd have to see what Trump says down the stretch, what he says down the stretch, but I certainly would consider it. But he's running in a Democrat primary. It's not going to happen. So it's all a soap opera anyway. But my colleagues are ignoring the concept of substance versus entertainment, a king versus a leader, a Samuel versus a king. And the difference between that is whether you want results. And I want to be clear, it's not that, oh, whether DeSantis is going to fight for us or Trump's going to fight for us. What DeSantis represents is, in contrast to Trump, is self-governance, is you yourself. Because if you care about results, by definition, you know you can't put that into one basket, put those eggs into one basket. Oh, he's going to help me. You can't take your Trump mindset mentality and just project it on DeSantis because it's you know, largely the same problem. I think he'll do a better job, but no. It's that we need to fight and articulate on multiple fronts and stay focused and stay disciplined and stick to landing and see the outcome. And with that, I want to introduce DeSantis's immigration plan and, you know, where it stands in contrast to Trump headed forward, he obviously announced in Eagle Pass today his, his, uh, border in, his border plan. And I want to discuss why that rings true with me based on what we already know the man has done. You see, I mean, any, anyone could be, uh, you know, oh, I'm, I'm for being tough on immigration. Right, right now, every Republican is strong on the border. In rhetoric, Republicans are more hawkish on the issue than they've ever been in my lifetime. I started covering it in 2006. And yeah, they're better off. But if you look carefully, we're not getting results. And I don't just mean, oh, because Biden's president. But if you look in the states as well. So I want to use the issue of immigration, but maybe go through a few others to bring out this thesis, the dichotomy between results and entertainment, a leader versus a king. What do you want? The choice couldn't be more stark. So don't talk about RFK in the Democrat primary as if that's going to be your comedic relief. I want to confront people with the record of DeSantis as governor and the record of Trump as president. They both have records, results, versus rhetoric. Because obviously Trump is promising, oh, I'm going to do mass deportations. I'm gonna... I mean, it's the same thing. Literally, I mean, this man might be, he, he might be able to make the case, a legal case, that he is uh, 
eligible for two terms. I mean, you listen to him, it's as if he was never president. But anyway, I almost forgot our sponsor today, Birch Gold Group. Look, do you know in three weeks, three weeks, our government has issued $700 billion in more debt in three freaking weeks. I think it took from our founding until, I want to say something like 1978 to accrue $700 billion in debt. So three weeks there. In other words, core inflation is here to stay. It's going to be here. That's why gold is always the best hedge. Why Birch Gold? Because they make it easy to convert an IRA or 401k into an IRA in precious metals. Here's what you need to do. Text Daniel to 989898. You get a free info kit. Um, For those who have never done this before, how to do it, you have a phone number there. You could call their brilliant customer service. Uh, These are like economist type of guys, not just clerks. They uh, will know exactly what needs to be done with your situation, what sort of mix of investment. Uh, They have an A-plus rating from the Better Business Bureau, thousands of happy customers, and countless five-star reviews for good reason. Birch Gold is who you can trust to protect your future. So text now the word Daniel, my name, Daniel, to 989898 so you don't uh, allow your money to deplete in the abyss of government inflation, which, which again, it is going on and on and on. And, And by the way, that is also a legacy of, of Trump. In many respects, the debt, just like the debt numbers, just like immigration numbers, the debt is built off of Trump's legacy. Yes, of course, Biden's worse, but that was built off the Trump administration rather than going backwards on immigration numbers and debt numbers went forwards. So it created a certain precedent. Yeah, they'll one up it. And then the next Republican president, then the next Democrat president. We have to stop forgetting that this man was president. By the way, I, I just want to, I, I promise this will be my last comment on this before we go back to Trump and immigration versus DeSantis's plan. So with RFK, just one thing, his wife is a flaming liberal, and I'll never forget that she had an event during COVID with vaccine verification, like you needed to be vaccinated. And it was a huge embarrassment to our movement that if this guy is going to be the leader of our movement and then his wife is sitting and pushing that, you know, I, I'm sorry, but that does kind of matter. That does matter. I'm just saying for all of his talk, and I think he I, he means well, I, I, you really got to think very long and hard. Put yourself in the situation of RFK becoming president. I think there are some things we would like, but I don't think it's going to be quite as good as you think it is. Whereas obviously with... With Ron DeSantis, his wife is awesome on policy, and that really does make a difference. So anyway, the DeSantis immigration plan, I'm not really going to go through it. You know why? Because there's nothing that remarkable, a few things, but mainly it's not that remarkably distinct from the stuff Trump is promising. Now, did promise before, Trump had Stephen Miller and several of my friends that I've worked with on this issue that helped him out. And at some point, Intermittently pushes Dream Act amnesty, but you know when he's not doing that, he says the right, he says the left. Trump has said everything at some point. He has either said or tried each one of these items. Most of these items, you know, the birthright citizenship, the interior enforcement, the magnets, the border. Um, you know, all all these things. Everyone's going to say it, and Trump certainly is going to say it. But what is different is that you are getting leadership. 
not just a king, I will do this, and then you just get entertainment, but you actually have a leader. And the reason why DeSantis's plan lands, he calls it no excuses, because you look at it and you're like, yeah, that, that sounds like a guy who has the smarts, the articulation, the personnel, the policy and legal discipline. And also the discipline to face tough headlines. Because this is important to see it through. To see it through. See, the same time he's introducing his immigration plan, there's this story in NBC. Florida immigrants detail their exit following DeSantis immigration law. I have to leave, quote. And they quote this construction worker, this David Guerrero and his family, that they're packing up and they actually left Florida. And this guy, they claim, has been there for many years, not just a recent arrival. And he left and he went to Maryland. (laughs) And they note in this article that a bunch of people, they don't have data on it, but they say a bunch of people are leaving particularly in Immokalee, Southwest Florida. We talked about that area before, the tomato farms, and they are actually picking up and leaving. And they have this quote. I'm trying to see where this is in this NBC article where this woman has verified that this is not just an anomaly but is actually taking place across the board. It is... I was well I was well situated in Florida, he said I was doing well financially, stable with work. There was no problem. Now it's the opposite. So the time came to make a decision. I told my wife, no way she's going to have to go because they don't want us here. They don't want us here. They don't want us here. I want you to remember that that word. They don't want us here. And then there's this kind of like illegal alien coalition group there that basically said this is happening everywhere. The Florida Immigrant Coalition, it's happening at such a fast level that we don't have concrete numbers. So they don't have concrete numbers, but they claim it's happening. And illegals are moving out of Florida. Now, think about it. Trump was president who had his full hand on the football so you could could throw a nice 60-yard pass, and yet he tossed an interception. It went backwards. But this man just has two fingers on the ball because he's only a governor of one state. And you see, like, he sticks the landing. Whoa, they really mean this. And that leads me to the fundamentals of this immigration issue. Because this is the issue I've dealt with the most of my career. It's a big subject of my first book, Stolen Sovereignty. It's a unique issue. Why? Because typically when you have a vexing public policy issue, it's vexing because it's difficult. You know, you have a natural disaster, a natural problem. So it takes a degree of ingenuity and uh, innovation to try to solve it. Illegal immigration is not some sort of novel problem. It's invited in. It's a man-made problem. In law enforcement, they often say that organized crime, as opposed to like individual private quiet crime, but like organized crime, it's very public, it's very out in the open, it can only persist if it has political protection. Hence, different cases of mafias and gangs, right? It's operating out in the open. So law enforcement has to be okay with it 
in order for it to keep going. So you can't get anything more public and organized than mass migration across the border. When in history do you have the biggest superpower of the era having a porous border that they can't control? You never did. It's not hard to do it. It's because they want it. Both sides of the border want it to happen. Both political parties want it to happen. The difference is Republicans once in a while will complain about an extreme degree to which the Democrats take it like they do on every issue, but they want it. You see this all the time. I mean, you have a lot of these governors right now saying Biden on the border, and then they literally, like Kevin Stitt in Oklahoma, Brad Little in Idaho, and all these guys, they're fighting to get driver's licenses for illegals. Meaning not only won't they cut off the existing magnets, they want to create more bennies. They will never enforce employment. And that's the 800-pound gorilla in the room, is employment. The governor's like, they know he is willing to do it. For two reasons. Number one, he's willing to do it. Number two, he's willing to fight the corporation. See, this is the thing. Republicans might culturally say, yeah, there's all these illegals. Oh, except for the farm workers. (laughs) Right? Because... You have all the illegals in the urban areas, but you have a lot of the illegals in the rural areas as well because of the farms. They will not fight that. You think you don't have a big tomato and lettuce and orange industry in Florida? You have a huge one. DeSantis ran against the sugar lobby in 2018. He ran for governor and won. So everyone knows he means business. He'll see it through. But it's not just the discipline, the messaging, the policy smarts, the personnel. That's true. But also he has the guts to do two things. To fight the special interest, which Trump didn't. And also to fight through the sympathy. Intellectually. You read this NBC article. Oh, it's heart-rending. It's heart-rending. Right? It's tear-jerking. Look, this family has to get up and all these families, they have to leave the America they love. This is why we never got it done. Everyone's like, oh, it's terrible. Illegal immigration is terrible. Just like the debt is terrible. No Republican will defend the debt. But then it's like, okay, well, which program are you going to cut? None. And in fact, every time we have an opportunity, we're actually going to grow it with new programs on GOP Watch. And it's the same thing with illegal immigration. Every Republican hates illegal immigration. But do you want to get rid of them? Well, Dana, we didn't mean to get rid of them. Oh, so you're not serious about ending it. And to this day, that's where the GOP is. In comes Trump in 2016. And I have no doubt that Trump in his own mind was actually seriously wants to end the problem. And I think in his own mind, he still does. But here's what happened. He comes in and telegraphs to the left, the corporations, the NGOs, the cartels, the global organizations that help them, like the UN type of organizations, and he telegraphs that he is going to be an existential threat to their one of their biggest policy goals, which is you know endless erasing of borders and endless illegal migration, and and not just in America, but you know other places too. And they didn't want Trump setting a pre- precedent that we're going to have sovereign nation states. So commensurate with Trump's rhetoric, rhetoric, I say, the other side upped their ante 
in action. And they crafted a three-pronged plan to deal with him. So first off, you know, he becomes president. And let me just say the good part. The good part is, you see exactly what I'm saying. The way to end illegal immigration is to actually make it illegal. We don't. Our INA says it's illegal. 8 U.S.C. 1225-B2A says, right, anyone who shows up that's not clearly and beyond a doubt entitled to be admitted shall be detained for removal proceedings, right? I mean, that's, that's a law. You can't come. If you don't have a visa, you can't come. But then we're like, well, if you come in, well, we have Plyler v. Doe. You get K-12. through You go to the hospital. Oh, you have a kid. He's an American citizen. Oh, here, you know, you know, you could work. You could even take them to the State of the Union address, the Capitol, and nothing will happen to you. By the way, before January 6th, you used to have illegals, like this Dream Act rallies. They would they would defecate on, on, on the floor in certain congressional offices. They would rampage through it. None of them were ever held in prison, much less removed or anything. It was a complete joke. So it was this, this schizophrenic attitude. So the cartels knew this. The illegals knew it. They knew it. It's like, okay, a country's like, oh, don't come here illegally. But here's how you come, and you're going to remain here, and you're fine. Right? That, that, that was the message. The message was very clear. But if you tell them that, actually, you come here... You won't get any bennies. You won't get any jobs. You won't get birthright citizenship. And in fact, if we catch you, we're going to remove you. Guess what? They won't come. So indeed, the first few months of the Trump administration, you saw that in action. Just like we're seeing with DeSantis in Florida, it responded to incentives or a lack of incentives. And indeed, for the first time ever, it's low to a trickle. You're getting as little as like 11,000 apprehensions a month. Okay, it was great. But then the left, I think they realized that, you know, all these flaws with Trump. So they concocted a three-part plan. Number one, sanctuary cities. Okay, well, you're, you're not going to invite them, but we'll have the states and the cities invite them and I think, you know, the sanctuary cities and states represented like 70, 80% of where illegal aliens lived. So like, all right, well, you know, you don't want to give them bennies, but we will. It's number one. Number two, lawfare, where they aggressively took everything to courts, particularly shopped around to district judges in California that they knew were very sympathetic to put a nationwide injunction on things. We spent copious, copious pages of, Columns and days of, of, of this show in 2018, 2019 talking about that. And then number three, caravan-driven migration. So you used to have this quiet migration, but this kind of loud and proud that we have a right to come in. And particularly, they brought in these family units. If you remember, this is where it switched from kind of, um, you know, the single males. Even under Obama, it started with the UACs, the unaccompanied minors, but they were mainly like teenage males. And this was families with young children flooding the border. And that would that was supposed to mix in with the lawfare, too. So point two and three mixed together. And also, it was the sympathy card. Because they knew they would, are you going to remove the families, the children? And I want to make it very clear. I don't blame Trump for any one of those things. Right? He didn't cause it. He didn't like it. 
He tried to fight it. I don't blame him for that. He didn't agree. I don't, I'm not saying he agreed with it. This is my point. See, I'm not talking about the tranny issue and I'm not talking about vaccines. On this issue, legitimately, on paper, their plans are going to be very similar to Santos and Trump, on paper. But here's where it mattered. He taunted the left as if he'd cut their head off on this issue. But then they formulated a very smart plan. And that was the problem. Trump didn't have the ability to fight back. He didn't have the ability to fight back because, A, he appointed Kelly and Kirsten Nielsen. I mean, all of his appointees at DHS were garbage. Horrible. All of them. Chad Wolf was a visa lobbyist, his third one. The only good guy he had was Ken Cuccinelli, who was USCIS administrator, whatever it's called, director, and then uh, eventually deputy DHS secretary. He was the only good guy that was doing good things. But then, you know, there's a reason why Ken is supporting DeSantis. He saw what went on there. So you had a shallow state that he appointed that opposed him. You had the Kushner, kind of Brooke Rollins, Jerome Smith, domestic policy guys that were horrible on the issue. This sympathy card played very strongly with them. So, you know, Trump and Trump himself often would talk about, oh, the dreamers. Trump himself was conflicted. He'd say, throw them out, but then he'd say this. It's kind of the same thing he would say, give the drug traffickers the death penalty, but then he'd say, let them out. And I don't think Trump is retarded in that sense. I think... Look, every policy issue, no policy issue is 100-0. You could find in a vacuum sympathetic arguments to one side of it. But if on net it's an 80-20 issue, meaning 80% it's going to kill us, you can't go 80-20 and certainly not 50-50, waffle, vacillate, show weakness. you got to go 100%. This is the right thing to do. Okay. But you start showing weakness. So j- just like with the drug traffickers, like he he would he would be shown these examples. Oh, a guy really didn't do anything wrong, and, he, and he'd be taken in by that. I understand it, but fundamentally, that was a false narrative in terms of who gets into federal prison. It was a false narrative. So it's the same thing on illegal immigration. You ask Trump, should we have? It? He's like, no, throw these people the hell out of here. And and I don't think he was lying to us. He really means that. But then they would show these cases. Well, this guy was, he, he, he barely, he was brought here when he was three and he, he's more American than you are and, and he, he's being productive. Now, it's not, the, it's not that those arguments in a vacuum aren't true. Right? We don't have the ability to do perfect good. That's God. We have the ability to do justice. And those arguments were posited in the 1980s when we thought it was just, okay, a little bit, okay, you know, we have a little bit of illegal immigration, the first wave. You know what? There's a lot of people already here. You know what? Let's say we're not going to do it again and give these people amnesty. Makes a lot of sense. But the difference is we're 40 years later where we keep doing it again and again and again. That doesn't ring true. I don't care. Throw them all out now because you can't have what we're having. Once you show that weakness, well, I would, don't, don't come here. But you know what? If you're here, especially if you have kids, what are we going to do? Throw you out? So they all come with kids. And we have what we have today. 
I was called all sorts of racist names for years for arguing it against the Dream Act and these things, but that is why. We are living the Dream Act. Because of the, Obama started promoting it, and then even Trump did, and then he even tried to get rid of DACA, but did it sloppily. We're going to have the court case tomorrow on it. We'll see. So that sent the message to these people that if you come with a kid, you will not be removed. So you can't start making exceptions. Undoubtedly, there's so many criminal aliens. There's so many problems among them. But among all of them, are you going to find a decent human being that, you know, in a vacuum, you point to him versus a, a white, woke, Karen, you know, leftist? Hey, you know, if you, you give me the choice one-on-one, I'd rather have that illegal than that, that Karen. But we, we don't have that ability to make individualized choices like that. Practically, it doesn't work that way. And you got to enforce the law. That's the dirty little secret. Everyone's like, oh, it's lawless. We got to enforce the law. But then when you start confronting them with stories like this NBC article in Florida, they get all weak on it. And Trump himself was very conflicted on it. He might not sound like it now, but he always lapses back into that. So it's that lack of will, that lack of articulation. Also, because... Again, he wasn't so smart on policy, so he wasn't capable of articulating the points I'm making that DeSantis is capable of articulating. So he's going to see it through. But the point is, results matter. So we got to the point that by, by the time it was fiscal year 2019, we had almost a million, a million entrants into our country, doubling the average of what we saw under Obama. More than any year since before the recession. And this matters a lot. Why? See, if you compare to the Bush years, yeah, we had years with well over a million. The Clinton years, the 90s. But that's when we were filling up Mexico, but then we emptied out Mexico. So, And then the recession came and it, was, it kind of stopped. 2009, tr- it restarted under Trump with the Central Americans and extracontinentals because of the family stuff. Now, did Trump want it? No. But he didn't have the legal smarts and the articulation to see it through. And then, of course, the funding and legal authorities he needed to get in the budget bills, he didn't have it. And that's how we we talk about this a lot. The failure on immigration flows from the same failure on the debt and the budget bills. So he would have Stephen Miller and these other guys, he's like, yeah, we're going to throw out the illegals. We're going to build the wall. But then you had Stephen Mnuchin, his Secretary of Treasury, who didn't really deal with immigration, yay or nay, either way, although he was horrible on it and certainly did influence. But he negotiated with Paul Ryan these horrible budget bills that ruined the one opportunity we had to force the issue. And that's why, until his final year, he the first three years, he barely built any wall. You know, even, even ultimately, I think the tally is he built 47 miles of primary fencing where it never existed. Another 30 miles of secondary fencing that didn't exist. And then maybe another 370 or so of replacement fence, which is legitimate. Most of it was very legit. I don't want to downplay that like it was nothing. Oh, it's just replacement. No, they were dilapidated and this was much better. So you could say it was a few hundred miles. 
But that's because he didn't start in his first year when they had the trifecta. Results matter. Outcomes matter. At the end of the day, they started the precedent of mass caravans, of family migration. And and this led to where we are with Biden. Is Biden's invasion even worse? Yeah, but the 2018-2019 crisis under Trump was really bad. I covered that for 18 months straight. The same intensity, some of you new listeners know from me with COVID, that's what we covered. And ironically, it was only COVID that shut it down. If not for COVID, it would have flowed right into the next admin. So so Trump gets the brag. It looks like, oh, it was shut down, and then Biden restarted it. But it, it's, it's an illusion because it was pretty bad under Trump. Now, it is true. So while, while um, Trump was accruing in the peak of his thing months of 100,000 illegal apprehensions and now we're getting over 200,000 but do keep in mind some of those are title 42 turnbacks so they're multiples they they come out they turn them back um in terms of the numbers let into the country and allowed to remain because they were families a good number of them the overwhelming majority remained in the country under trump now you add it up it's still worse under biden but that set that precedent and then on interior enforcement Let's go back to interior enforcement. Okay, that does matter. And the average yearly removals under Trump's four years of president were one-third of what they were during Obama's first term. The second term is when he started with the amnesties and whatever. That's a problem. Now, a lot of that is because of the sanctuary cities. It's because of the courts. But again, I, I'm not just Johnny come lately. You could go back to my archives. I made the arguments with each budget bill. You need X number of legal changes and authorities to get around the courts and money for ERO, enforcement re- removal operations, because we only have like 5,000 deportation operators for the entire country to start with the removals. And it bombed out. And that's where we are. Negative efficacy. This is the problem when you taunt the left with Trump's rhetoric, but then don't have the guts, the values, the smarts, the discipline, the focus, the consistency, and the personnel to see it through. That's a Pfizer shot. That's the negative efficacy. That's antibodies that are strong enough to bind, but not strong enough to neutralize. It gets worse. There's no points for good intentions in the zero-sum game of the destruction of our civilization. Results have to matter. Stop with the excuses. There's plenty of excuses. So, folks, this is immigration. It's not so much DeSantis is the details of his plan. It's that you know based on who he is, he's going to land it. There's a couple of provisions I just, just want to point out that I think demonstrate this. That demonstrate this. So, one of the things he's he's talking about is that you know a lot of these guys, these smugglers, they're cutting through the wall. So, first of all, let me just say this: this is another area he gave into pressure. The bureaucrats at DHS said. Oh, you need to be able to see the other side of the border. 
Now, I'm not going to tell you that in a vacuum there's no merit to what they're saying. See, this is the problem. It's not that there's no merit to what bureaucrats say sometimes, but you know, it's just on net where we have to go and making decisions. So they're like they wanted to see through thing. That's not an impervious wall. So you have these like poles, they cut them. Whereas if you had a complete what Trump originally had in mind, which is what should have been done, a straight up barrier, that's a lot harder to mess with. So the cartels actually it's all over the place. They cut through it. We spend a ton of money and they just cut through it. So DeSantis pointed pointed this out when he was at the border. He's like, we need to update rules of engagement. He's like, if someone's sawing down your door, you have the right to use force. He didn't say the words, but what he clearly means is to shoot at them. And he wants to give Border Patrol the authority to shoot at them. So that that's like a specific thing I haven't heard from elsewhere that tell me he gets it. He totally gets it. He also says that we reserve the right to operate across the border to secure our territory from the cartels. So he gets that point as well. But but again, it's nothing like, oh my gosh, is it earth shattering? It's the laundry list of things that all of us have called for and Trump himself has called for and some of them he tried to, to implement it through executive order. But he can never make it land. So I wanted to talk about this in terms of you know, immigration, now that we're, to, we're, we're involved in that. But I, I want to make it clear, this same theme about Trump being distracted with entertainment and rhetoric rather than leadership and results manifested on everything. The debt, too. Well, Daniel, it's not his fault. It's COVID. But, but again, you are confronted with the biggest challenge on your watch, and you failed. And also, before COVID, too, I mean, him, he worked with Paul Ryan. He, he blew out Obama's levels before COVID. Okay? So result, at the end of the day, results matter. You can make all the excuses you want. But you look at the debt. So I don't want to hear about this Biden inflation. The inflation, we know where the inflation started. Now, it takes, it takes about a year to two years for this stuff to blow up, and it blew up under Biden. Now, to be fair, Biden stepped on the gas pedal. But why did he have the ability to create that you know, new baseline? Because he's working off of the existing baseline that blew out Obama's levels. Here are the facts. You can make excuses, but here are the results. We talked about the border numbers. Now let's talk about the, the debt numbers. If you want to measure federal spending, the, the average, the increase per year in office... So if you would average out the increase in spending over the previous year, how much in, how much spending increased year over year, and this is adjusted to constant 2021 dollars. So it's you know adjusted for inflation. So we're comparing like terms. Jimmy Carter, it grew 62 billion per annum. Okay, again, we're not just going on 1970s dollars. We're going on 2021 dollars. 62 billion. Reagan about the same. George Bush the elder, 97 billion. Bill Clinton, only 34 billion. Again, that had to do with the booming economy, the GOP Gingrich House. Okay. George W. Bush starts ratcheting up to 136 billion. Obama back down to 86 billion. Still kind of high, but um, you know, that's where the the um the Budget Control Act came in, which of course was countermanded by Trump and Paul Ryan in 2017. 2018, really. 
And then you go to Trump. Remember, we talked about the the biggest one until then was one thirty six billion per year under Bush, eighty six for Obama, three hundred sixty six billion per annum. Yes, obviously the COVID one blows that out, but even if you take that away, it would still be a little bit more than Obama. Then you look at the next thing: annual real growth rate in federal spending. So let's take this as a percentage. Jimmy Carter, it averaged 3.72% growth of federal spending average annual per year, 3.72. Reagan, 3.15. HW, 3.9. Bill Clinton, of course, down to 1.19. George Bush the Younger, 3.95. Obama, 1.96. And by the way, if you notice a theme here with divided government sometimes works in our favor in that sense. Again, what was the highest? George W. Bush, 3.95. Trump, 6.92. I know COVID, COVID, but no. The baseline was even more. COVID blew it out. And then finally, could give two more measures. How much did you add to the debt per year? So again, in constant 2021 dollar Additions to the public debt per per annum, Jimmy Carter um, actually stayed kind of stagnant during his his time. Reagan, three hundred eighty four billion per year. H.W. six hundred and nine billion per year. Bill Clinton down to only one hundred sixty eight billion per year. George W. Bush up to six ninety four billion per year. Barack Obama. A little bit more than a trillion per year added to the debt. Trump, a little bit more than two trillion. Doubling, doubling. Again, we can make excuses. We could talk about the differences. We could talk about things. But results have to matter. Federal Reserve, in terms of their printing their balance sheet. Okay? It grew um, $150 billion per annum under George W. Bush. Unlike the fiscal spending, the monetary was worse under Obama because the Federal Reserve got worse and worse over time. It's a relatively new thing. So $150 billion in printing balance sheet under W, $300 billion, double that under Barack Obama, and an average of $750 and an average of, um, $750 billion so more than double that per annum under Trump. The balance sheet grew by nearly $3 trillion, 66%. I mean, dude, that is literally the definition of inflation. Do you want to go on to talk about crime? Again, certainly we have the first step back. He talked the biggest game on crime and literally did the worst pro-jailbreak legislation at the time it was getting worse than ever. Then you had the worst rioting in history under his watch. We all know with Rodney King, it got out of control for a day or two. H.W. Bush got in there, sent the military, and they stopped it even in L.A., much less elsewhere. This thing was burning and burning and burning for several months. And it was just pathetic. And again, this wasn't, this was by design, His top domestic policy advisor was Brooke Rollins, and she is the one who, to this day, heads America First think tank. 
She is weak on crime and immigration. They were like, you're going to hurt yourself. It's a New York Times article at the time. He didn't call for the Insurrection Act. He didn't call to put down any of this because he was scared of getting the black vote because it was piggybacked off of the brainwashing they did with him under the First Step Act. This is from Ryan Gerdusky wrote this at the time at the American Conservative. This was June 3rd, 2020. So, you know, about you know less than two weeks after the Floyd stuff broke out. And talks about where where was Trump? Where was he? In the days that followed, the White House felt absent in the national conversation. Protests turned to riots in cities like Minneapolis, Philly, Chicago, and Atlanta turned into war zones. Yet the president was nowhere to be found. Outside of Twitter and the few remarks given by Trump during the SpaceX launch, the silence from the White House was deafening. Sources inside the admin said that throughout the tumultuous weekend, the White House was running on a skeleton crew, yada yada. Um, while Washington burned, Trump was ushered into a bunker. On Thursday, Kushner and his allies, Brooke Rollins and Jerome Smith, told the White House and the campaign that they shouldn't discuss the riots in overtly negative terms because it could harm the campaign's efforts at, condition, at coalition building with the black community. They insisted the whole thing would eventually blow over. Okay, and um, and by the way, Jerome Smith was a guy that when he was working on Capitol Hill as a staffer, he there was this Capitol Hill protest for Trayvon. If you remember, that was the, kind of the first one of these things. He he went out and put on a hoodie like in solidarity for Trayvon. This guy was the lead crime policy guy for Trump in the White House. It's Orwellian. And again, I'm not a Johnny-come-lately. I said this all at the time. You guys remember that. With no team and no plan, Trump took to Twitter demanding that mayors and governors take more action. Writers and media personalities from nearly every conservative outlet tweeted, where is Trump? Presidential sycophants, many of whom campaigned against the president in 2016 primary, tried to calm the growing chorus of concerns. Their reasoning ranged from that there was nothing he could do, the optics would be bad, so it would help him November. Yet as the days mounted... And the riot spread to every major American city. It became glaringly obvious that the situation was only becoming worse. The president was missing in action. By Sunday, Attorney General Bill Barr, whom none of us like, but he started moving to declare Antifa a terrorist organization while also expanding efforts inside DOJ and making a push to activate the National Guard. Sources within the admin said that Barr was determined not to hang for Kushner's inaction. While Barr moved... The White House was still frozen. The New York Times reported, and it was independently confirmed to me, that Kushner and his allies pushed Trump to respond by holding listening sessions with black passers, business groups, and other organizations. Similar to what he did on, on, um, on COVID. Around midnight, Trump decided that he was going to give a national address, yet by the morning, the White House messaging was still in chaos. Kylie McKinney repeated Kushner's talking point that the presidential address, the nation wouldn't calm rioters. Later, Brooke Rollins gave a disastrous interview with Politico where she said the president was looking for bipartisan solutions. And we all lived this. He had his chance. He has not led. I I don't understand why it's defensible for my colleagues to ignore this. 
I could go on and on and on. You want me to talk about judges? Yes, it's much better than Democrats. But at the end of the day, Trump didn't do anything to create those vacancies. They were handed to him as a gift from God of circumstances that he got to not just Phil Scalia, which was held over by the GOP Senate under Obama, but but also Kennedy and then even Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And he had the GOP, because remember, Trump had control of the Senate the entire four years. He lost control of the House uh, the second two years. But he had the full ability to floor the gas pedal. And yes, we said, well, at least we didn't get David Souter. But why should we have gotten? We got Kavanaugh, who was not on the list. He was lobbying for the job. And just today, remember we talked about that Alabama decision, redistricting, where basically he codified, along with Roberts and the three you know, Democrat appointees, the right for that Democrats have a constitutional right to maximize their political advantage through the black vote. That is essentially what they're saying. So as we warned, it's not just Alabama. It's throughout the South. And now they sent the Louisiana maps back to the Fifth Circuit. So now that decision alone might single-handedly give the Democrats a very much a fortified majority, very hard to fight in the House permanently. This is disgusting. Yeah, we know he tried his best. He he knew. I I get all the excuses. I get it. But it's kind of like one of of the first books I ever read as a kid in kindergarten or whatever was Little Miss Helpful. That's what he reminds me of. (laughs) Little Miss Helpful. I get it. You know, unlike on vaccines where he's downright a cancer and the tranny stuff and the gay marriage, on a lot of these issues, I think he means well. I think he, he does. But if you don't have the policy smarts, the values, the articulation, the personnel, the discipline, the focus, the consistency, to see it through... And then that's before we even mention all of the other antics that make him and his and our issues unpopular because he dips them in feces, right? You know, when you have all these other image problems, it, it gives us an issue with swing voters. So then, yeah, I mean, it's worthless. So Trump's going to promise the moon on net between the two. You know, I could sit and parse split hairs. Well, you know, DeSantis has this in his plan. Trump maybe doesn't have it. But, you know, it's more or less the same. It's just that one is actually going to lead and implement and stick the landing. One will entertain us. So folks, which is it? Which model do we want? It's not just the person. Because it's emblematic of... Trump is not... It's not just Trump. And DeSantis is not just DeSantis. It's emblematic of two visions. Two focuses. Do we want the soap opera or substance? That is the question. Well, I I could tell you what we're going to deliver on every issue here. We're always going to focus on substance, and that's why I need you guys to help. Give us a five-star rating on iTunes with a comment. certainly helps get and elevate our show in the algorithm over the soap opera-oriented ones. Let me know what you think. Let me know if you think I'm wrong. Daniel Horowitz at Startmail. Startmail.com is the email. Until tomorrow, God bless you all. Peace.
Thank you for listening.